Well, turn in your Bibles, church family, to Acts chapter 2. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3. We were in Acts chapter 2 last week. Acts chapter 3 today. Acts 3 will be in verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Last year, my wife and me had to go through the process of renewing our passports. Some of you have had to go through that process or even just getting a passport. And I can tell you, I had no idea the process that that would be. I almost threw in the towel multiple different times, frustrated. I mean, if you've gone through that process, there's multiple steps, multiple lines, multiple documents, multiple weeks of waiting, just hoping that all of your important documents are not lost in the snail mail system as you say goodbye to that envelope. Because we weren't going to pay the extra money because it was already expensive to have it expedited or to do it on an online way. That was an incredible process. We made it through by God's grace And as I was reflecting on that process of getting a passport or renewing a passport, um, you know, that, that process comes down to multiple steps that seek to confirm or establish or certify or prove your identity, right? And where you're from. That's the point of the elaborate process and all the documentation is to prove or attest to the fact that you are who you say you are and that you are not a liar. If you remember when our church went through the gospel of Matthew, we saw that the identity of Jesus was highly controversial. And some understood who he was, that he was the Christ that was sent from God, while many, many others in the crowd and and, and others turned away, they were disappointed that Jesus didn't meet their expectations for him. Even some of Jesus's closest followers, if you remember in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is there sitting in prison and he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one to come? Or should we look for another? And you remember Jesus' response there. You go and tell John all these miracles have taken place. There were other points in Jesus' ministry when his followers turned back and no longer walked with him. We saw that in John 6, 66. Because his sayings were too difficult for them to bear. And you remember in John 6, that's what causes Jesus to turn to his 12 and and ask them, well, do you want to go away as well? Of course, you remember Peter's famous response, where else could we go? Jesus's identity as the Christ is of central importance. It was then and it is today. He's either the Christ, the Messiah, sent from God as the savior of his people or 
he is just another good intention prophet or worse, a liar. And in a room that has this many people in it, I am certain there are some in this room who have still not made up their mind to the identity of Jesus themselves. This past week, even in this building, we were speaking with somebody who wasn't a church member and they had not made up their mind. We were going back and forth. This person was very spiritual, but I could tell they did not agree with us on the identity of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Especially those in the room who haven't made up their minds. We have to deal with the identity of Jesus. There could be no more important question in all the world. Two weeks ago in, in Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, in verse 22, we saw that Peter said that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to. That word attested to just means validated or accredited or proven. He was proven by God to the people of Israel, it says, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Christ in the midst of them. But then, if you remember an important detail, Jesus dies and left many going, well, that is not, that, that was not what I had in my mind for our Messiah. But we saw last week in Acts 2.43 that these mighty works that Jesus began in his earthly ministry and the wonders and the signs were continuing through Jesus' holy apostles throughout the book of Acts. And today, Luke is giving us an example of one such miracle in these 10 verses. As we go through our passage today, I want to show us my attempt, my aim is to show us that even though there's unique context to our passage in this first century church, I want to help us see how it applies to our lives 2,000 years later. Okay? Here's the main idea I want us to see today from our passage, that the mission of Christ unfolds as his spirit-filled witnesses bring hope to the hopeless and credibility to their Christ. Christ's mission will unfold in our passage as his spirit-filled witnesses bring hope to the hopeless and credibility to their Christ. My desire is to unpack that main idea in two headings today. So the first heading will be the mission of Christ. The second heading will be the wonders of Christ. The mission of Christ and the wonders of Christ. There'll be a few subpoints under the wonders of Christ, but two main headings for us to think about today. Let's first look at the mission of Christ unfolding in our passage. Read with me verses one through four. Look down at your Bibles. Verses one through four. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. 
And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I want to stop there. We're seeing Christ's faithful witnesses carry out the mission of Christ in these four verses and what it's describing. If you remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples that they would receive power and they would be his witnesses who would carry out his mission. And so, in other words, they would no longer be living for their own plans, ultimately, their own purposes, ultimately. But instead, they would be walking in the Spirit, living for Christ alone, to be his witnesses wherever they go. And these apostles, in these verses, Peter and John, it says they're going up to the temple. They're going up to the temple to pray, the text says. And remember, we saw last week that the, this forming community, this church in Jerusalem, they were committed to the prayers. And this included, at this point, continuing to adhere to Israel's institutions and forms of worship, even as they did fully understand that something radical had changed in Christ's death and in his resurrection and in his ascension and in the spirit coming. Peter and John knew at this point of the day, this was 3 p.m., the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there would have been a greater crowd because it was the afternoon sacrifice Large, a larger crowd would have come at this point, and this would have provided these men a powerful opportunity for witness. So I want us to see that these guys are not just going up to the temple to run through the motions of the Jewish sacrificial system. That's not the ultimate reason why they're there. They are on mission with their Jesus. And Christ's mission was about to intersect with a man who our text says was lame from birth. I need to explain something about what that means very quickly. A biblical background and a cultural background to what it would have meant for this man to be lame from birth. The biblical background is Leviticus 21. And you can go read that later. Leviticus 21 has a whole list of infirmities, blindness, Mute, couldn't speak. One of the, on the list of infirmities was people who were lame. They were considered unclean, ceremonially unclean in the Jewish sacrificial system. And they were unable to come near the inner place of the temple because of their uncleanness in the Jewish sacrificial system. That's a biblical background, but there was another thing at play too. There was a cultural background. And if you remember, if you've read in your Bibles in John chapter nine, and I'm sure y'all have heard this story before where they're walking and there's a man, it says, who is blind and his disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man? Or was it his parents? Do you remember that question? What the disciples are 
asking there is a reflection of the cultural understanding of the day. That it was more than just you were ceremonially unclean, but how the Pharisees and the rabbis at this time through their Mishnah teachings, what had come to be taught is that actually because of specific sin by either you or your parents, God's curse was upon you. This is the context, this is the cultural background of this man's condition as we see him being carried and dropped down where he is. In this society, guys, this man was a hopeless, lost cause. He was somebody to avoid. And he was laid daily, it says, at the beautiful gate. There is some debate about the exact identity and the exact location of that gate. But what's important for us to see is that this gate led into the inner courts of the temple. And what we need to see is that this man, every day, it says, was dropped down at the gate, at the gate, on the outside, in the court of the Gentiles. Why was he dropped there? And it says to beg for alms to be given to him. And alms would have been like a coin or two that were thrown in his direction as Jewish worshipers flooded into the temple, they would throw a coin or two in the direction of needy people if they were there asking for alms. And what we need to know about the background of almsgiving, that it was taught by the rabbis that you would gain favor with God to give alms. And what's important for us to see is that this act of almsgiving would essentially have been a self-centered act. In other words, I gained something to throw a coin in that direction. You see what I'm saying? See, see, see what's going on here? But Peter and John are different. Peter and John are dramatically different in this account. They come to the temple empowered by the Holy Spirit on mission with Christ. And as they hear this man shout like he has with every other passerby, alms, alms, probably looking into the sky. They respond very differently. Look at verse four, what it says. Peter and John direct their gaze at this man. And they ask him, look at us. They showed this man first compassion and dignity by how they treat him. They look this man in his eyes, something that none of these other people would have ever done. In the flood of Jewish worshipers flying into the temple Flicking a coin in his direction, Peter and John show compassion and they show grace to this man and they dignify him as someone made in the image of God and they approach him and they look in his eyes. 
Often when we don't care about somebody, we don't look at them in their eyes. You see, Peter and John are not simply going through the motions here at the temple. They're on mission with their Christ. And it turns an ordinary time of prayer at the temple into an extraordinary divine encounter that, as we'll see, will bring eternal hope to this hopeless and helpless man. And church family, if I can get really personal and practical here with us, I'm going to apply this more broadly at the end. But right now, I just want to, I want to ask you, when you attend church on Sunday, how do you do so? Do you come on autopilot? Do you come like these Jewish worshipers, devout, no doubt, Or do you come like Peter and John with their eyes open to how the Lord would want to use them this day? We need to think about this. Often we don't think about being on mission when we come to church. I know there's a different context. I realize that. But let me give us something to think about. When you come to church on Sunday, you're taking part in the Great Commission. You're taking part when you come on Sunday to church in helping the people of God that you're in covenant with in this church obey all that Christ commanded. That is the mission of the church. And when we come on Sunday, we should come expectant to be used for that in one another's lives. We don't just come to gain favor with God If you're in Christ today, you have favor with God. Praise Christ. We come on mission with Christ to church on Sunday. Are you, can I ask you, are you interruptible on Sunday? Or do you have your set agenda of what you do every single Sunday? And you better not cross me on that agenda. And I'm I'm indicting myself Guys, I have, a, I have a set thing that I often do when I come on Sunday. Steps that I go through. Guys, I want it to be an, a, a, a regular prayer of mine to make me interruptible on Sunday in the hallways with the staff that I see all the time. Lord, how would you use me in the lives of these people that I'm gonna see today? Because he desires to use you in the lives of these people today. What about a visitor that comes through? We often have visitors these days by God's grace. What if one walks right into your path or sits in your section on Sunday? Are you ready for that? How the Lord would wanna use you for his purposes when you come on Sunday. Well, let's take a closer look at the hope that Peter and John bring to this man and this miracle and this wonder through the power of Christ that we're going to see in our second point, our, this second heading, if you would. This is the wonders of Christ we're going to look at here. I'll have a few sub points to help us understand this miracle and what's going on in the context. I should say here, next week, there's a full unpacking of this miracle by Peter in his second sermon. 
Blair's going to preach that next week. So don't miss next week. You'll hear an even fuller explanation of what we're seeing in our passage. But there are many things to see and understand in these 10 verses. So we're looking at 5 through 10. And let's read what happens in verses 5 through 8 together. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you just imagine what that would have been like? A mighty work, a wonder is done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth through Peter, a miracle that heals this man that restores his strength back to him. And the text says immediately his ankles and his feet were made strong. How does that happen? How does that happen? I want us to see first under the wonders of Christ, the wonders of his name, the wonder of his name. How does this happen? Well, the text tells us in verse six, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The wonder of his name. And what does that mean? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In the Bible, someone's name was not just an identification of them. It wasn't just a way to distinguish someone from someone else. It wasn't just a representation of them. The biblical concept of someone's name represented the very nature, expressed the very nature of that person's being. So something being done in the name of something meant that it was as if the person himself is being invoked. And the person being invoked by Peter here is Jesus Christ. So it's as if Jesus himself does this miracle. Peter will make that crystal clear in 2, 12 through 16. We will look at that next week. But it's as if Jesus himself does the miracle. And that's why you'll probably hear me say throughout this time that this was Jesus' miracle. Because it is. Practically, I want us to think for a moment. I've been convicted about this as I've looked at this passage this week. How do we typically use Jesus' name from a day-to-day basis? How do you think about your own life? How do you use Jesus' name on a day-to-day basis? Think if I'm being honest, it's usually just tacked on without much thought to the end of a prayer. We should think about how we use, and we certainly shouldn't use his name in vain. 
the wonder of Jesus' name. When we, we should use it at the end of our prayers, hear me, because through his name and by his name is the only reason our prayers are effective or heard or received or, or answered. We should pray in Jesus' name, but we shouldn't use it, that phrase as a throwaway expression. These men certainly do not. We shouldn't casually use Jesus' name. We shouldn't laugh at jokes or sitcoms that constantly take Jesus' name in vain. That should really bother us. But we don't just see the wonder of his name. We also see the wonder of his power, don't we? The wonder of his power, which is related to his name. Peter's second sermon next Sunday will give more detail, but there are some things I want to say in these 10 verses about the significance of Christ's power in this miracle. The obvious thing that we have to see that no one can deny, because all these people saw it, was that the man's physical strength is completely restored back to him. Completely restored. Then think about it. Just imagine. We learn from chapter four, this man was more than 40 years of age. He was born lame. That the lifeless, non-existent muscles in this man's body were in a moment healed, strengthened, brought back to life to showcase the omnipotent power of Jesus through his apostles. There is a physical healing being put on display for everyone to see here, being showcased to put on display the wonders of Christ's power. This miracle is about Jesus. Hopefully I've made that clear already. This miracle is about Jesus's power and about Jesus's glory and about Jesus's identity and his power. If you're a child in this room and you are listening to anything that I'm saying and you're thinking, how in the world could Jesus heal somebody who was this sick and this weak. And you might find it remarkable that Jesus healed somebody that had no strength in his legs and who had never taken a step in his entire life. But I want you to remember as you drive home today, that as you look out your window and you see the sun blaring in the sky as I was watching it driving here today, or tonight if you see the moon, I want you to remember that Jesus created those and he hung those and if he can make those and hold them in their place it's really easy for him to do this miracle that's a reminder for all of us too but this isn't even the ultimate miracle this isn't even the ultimate hope that's given to this man that will be described immediately next in our passage. The ultimate wonder that I want us to see, the ultimate wonder of wonders 
that Luke's describing here is in verse 8. We're looking at here the wonder of Christ's hope and his grace. And I'm not using the word hope in the flimsy way that our culture uses it. But in the biblical way, the Romans 5 kind of way, hope that doesn't ever disappoint you, that will never put you to shame, that's rock solid because of who it's built upon. The wonder of Christ's hope and grace is manifested in this man's life. And we see it in what happens immediately after this man is healed. The text says that this man leaps into the temple. It uses that expression twice. Did you see that in verse eight? He leaps into the temple and he there is now praising God. What, what a change. This is a man who was always stuck on the outside as an outcast at the gate, dropped, whose hope horizons were really just on maybe getting some food that evening with the money he was able to scrounge together. And here he is. His health is restored back, but he runs into the presence of God in the temple. This is signifying what has taken place spiritually in this man's life. Peter will make it crystal clear next week that the faith of this man in the name of Jesus is what's made him well. He was a man ceremonially unclean and now he's leaping into the presence of God as it were, leaping into the temple as one who is accepted now in the presence of God, having his health restored back to him because of his faith in the name of Jesus. We've said, I know we said this in the gospel of Matthew. I'm sure we've said it again, but the goal of the gospel, church family, the goal of the gospel is not forgiveness of sins. That's an effect of the gospel. It's an important effect of the gospel, but it's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is, 1 Peter 3.18 tells us is to be brought to God. If you remember when we were preaching through Matthew, we saw the significance of Jesus dying on the cross and the temple curtain being split from top to bottom. And all that that signified, that there was now access. There's now access to God through the work of Jesus Christ who transforms lives. That is really important for us to see. The fulfillment, we prayed it in our prayer of praise today, the fulfillment of, of Psalm 16. Psalm 16, 11, we say all the time, that will be perfectly fulfilled for everyone who is in Jesus Christ, that we will find fullness of joy in God's presence forever, pleasures forevermore, in the presence of God. That is the goal of the gospel, being brought to God. John 2.19, there Jesus claims to be the new temple. He claimed to be the new temple in John 2.19 because, think about this, because Jesus is the new place. 
for sinners to meet with God. Do you see that? In Christ, sinners find access now in fellowship with God. This eternal hope is the greatest hope that this man finds in this passage. He's more than 40 years old. I don't know if that means he's closer to 50 or if he's closer to 40. I don't know what that means. But here's what I do know. That man's strength would wear out again. His legs would lose strength towards the end of his life. But what could never be taken away from him is the new hope he found in Jesus Christ that allows him to leap into the presence of God in the temple and praise his God who has made him well. Church family, in these verses, I want us to see, I think you're, you could tell already, I want us to see that you and me are far more like this lame beggar than we are Peter and John. It's really easy to come to passages like this and go, yeah, I'm more like Peter and John. I like, I like to be the one that, that's bringing help to people. And we can, we can bring help to people. But I want us to see, what, what do I mean by that? Peter and John are apostles. They're, they're in a unique office that Jesus has commissioned them in. And there are some things we can learn by what they're doing here. But you and me are far more like the lame beggar in this passage. Desperate, on the outside, outcast, until Jesus graciously and powerfully showed up to heal us in our life. Amen? Where would Peter and John be? Think about them without Jesus powerfully showing up in their lives. They were just as spiritually hopeless as this man was until Jesus met them in his power and empowered them through his spirit. This miracle, guys, is a picture of how the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ breaks in to very broken lives to transform them. When we truly understand the gospel, it changes how we read our Bibles. You're not, and I'm not, the hero of Bible stories. We're the one in need of grace in Bible stories. It affects how we read our Bible when we see that Jesus is the hero of Bible text. And I just want to say a word to unbelievers that are in this room. Those who I addressed at the beginning during the introduction, who has still not made up their mind about the identity of Jesus, or those here today who think just like this man, they're on the outside. They don't think that they could be helped or forgiven or that Jesus could never forgive them and meet them right where they're at in their mess and sin. He can. He can save you today. If you're here and you think Jesus cannot in his omnipotent grace reach out and powerfully save you from all of your sin and transform your life, he can. Come find me, Blair. Turn to someone who looks like a Christian next to you. Ask them about this Jesus and they will tell you he can transform your life as he's transformed theirs and as he's transformed mine. Don't leave today being on the outside of Christ's kingdom. You could leave today just like this man, leaping into the presence of God and praising him. The wonder of Christ's hope and grace to broken sinners is amazing.
But can we learn anything from Peter and John? Yes, a couple of quick things. They're being used as channels of God's grace and power in the lives of others. As they go with Christ on mission, they don't operate in their own power, do they? That's exactly what Peter's gonna say next week. Why are you looking at us like it was our own piety or power that this man is, is it? They're relying upon Jesus's power to be channels of God's power and grace in the lives of others. They don't operate in their own strength as they take part in the special ministry that Jesus has given them. And they do not, as I've already said, they do not use the name of Jesus as a throwaway phrase tacked onto the end of an autopilot prayer. They realize the gravity and the power of his name when they speak it. Now, I want to be very practical and clear with what I'm about to say. There is a false teaching that is out there today called the Word of Faith Movement. The Word of Faith Movement. And if you don't know it by that name, you know it by its forms, I promise you. Because the Word of Faith Movement has crept into so many things today, so many teachings, so many songs, and it's a false teaching because it contradicts so much of the Bible, church family. The Word of Faith movement teaches that if we simply use the name of Jesus with enough faith, he will do whatever healing or whatever breakthrough we have asked him to do. And that physical sickness is ultimately never God's will for our lives. So whatever the difficulty, whatever the hardship, whatever the trial, whatever the sickness, this movement would say, if you have enough faith and simply speak the name of Jesus over it, the situation, the difficulty, the hardship, God will answer your prayers and grant that. That's what is taught in the official teaching of it. And it's what is implied in so many songs that we hear, so many teachings that are out there. And you need to know this is a false teaching. Why is it a false teaching? Because as I said, it repudiates so much of the New Testament. It makes no sense of so much of this book, the book of Acts. We are gonna see the, the people of God as they go through the book of Acts suffer relentlessly go through trial after trial. People will die early. Paul, interestingly, in chapter 14, does a very similar miracle. He is stoned nearly to death, driven out of town. And Paul survives. And what does he do? He just keeps going back through the churches and he's teaching them. What does he teach them? This is really important, Acts 14. That through many trials and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of God. The Word of Faith movement denies that. And they want to move the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth into our world right now. And that matters because it changes your expectations about the Christian life, doesn't it? It changes how you'll imagine God in your Christian life. So I know what you're wondering should we try and heal people then like Peter and John here? Quickly, my answer to that is yes and no. Yes and no. Quickly, no, because Peter wants 
to be incredibly clear in 2.43 and 5.12 that these miracles are taking place at the hands of the apostles. There's a special ministry of healing that Jesus has given to his apostles. They have a unique ministry. Luke is very clear about that. So, so I don't think we should walk around trying to just lift people from the ground like they do in this passage. But I also want to say, yes, we're invited throughout the scriptures to pray for physical healing. And you should know just a couple of weeks ago, a member of this church called some of the pastors following the example of James 5 to ask for healing, to come and ask for healing. And we did. We went over there following that example and we begged God for healing for this member. That he would show his glory through this healing. And yet we also prayed that the hope of this member would not ultimately be on physical healing, but on Jesus Christ himself. That is the difference between the word of faith movement and biblical Christianity. Your hope is not on a miracle. Ultimately, it's on Jesus. We set our hope on him. He'll never fail us. And his promises are good for you in the, in the future. He will come back for his own and he will restore all things and wipe away every tear and every sickness will be gone one day. And we hold fast to that. And we expect that day with great joy. So we should pray for healing, but there isn't a magical formula of words you can say in a prayer that gets our prayers answered. That's what we have to understand. We shouldn't listen to teachings or to songs that would suggest otherwise. God is sovereign and we ultimately trust his sovereign purposes in our life. And in his promises, as I've said, of what he'll ultimately do in the future and making all things new. All things will be made new by him. Lastly, quickly, we see the wonder of his identity. Some of you have a cross-reference Bible. And in verse 8, there's a cross-reference to Isaiah 35, 6. This miracle is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 6. Why is that important to say? Because Isaiah 35 is speaking about the messianic age that will come. Luke includes the miracle to show how it gives credibility to Jesus as the Christ, who he will preach, be preached primarily at this section of Acts to the Jewish people. Everyone coming to the temple at this hour in, of prayer and sacrifice, they see with their own eyes, verse nine says, this man leaping and praising God. And those faithful Jewish people who knew the scriptures would have known the prophet's words in Isaiah. And these, these words are on the screen. There's, this is describing the days when the Messiah would come. And here's what it says. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in wilderness and streams in the desert. These days are among them. 
You see the power of the fulfillment of this miracle in this place to preach authoritatively that we'll see. Peter will stand and do this next week. And we're gonna see the pattern of, that we've already seen in chapter two that will happen again here in this section, a miracle that occurs that gathers a crowd that becomes the occasion for the gospel to be preached with power. A miracle that occurs that gathers a crowd that provides the occasion for the gospel to be preached. Word and deed going together. We see it over and over in Acts. Quickly, how do we respond? First, we live on mission with Christ. Do you see yourself as on mission with Jesus? It will change the purpose you live with every day of your life. You bear his name. That's what your baptism meant. You bear the name of Christ. And we live as his witnesses in the world. And it will turn our ordinary days at our jobs into extraordinary days with Christ with him, with us, through his Holy Spirit, on mission with him. I want to get really practical. There was a faithful pastor I saw put on his Twitter. You're wondering, I want to live that way, Kurt. How do I do that though? Faithful pastor posted this last week. Just listen to this. This won't be on the screen. He said this, meetings, decisions, sermons, needs, too much to do in way too little of time. What to do? And he said, number one, Time with God in the morning. Number two, take him with me consciously throughout the day. And number three, treat each person I see with unhurried love and dignity. And then he said, and everything else will take care of itself. What do you think about that? It's a summary of the great commandment. But I wonder how many of us do that effectively. Be with the Lord in the morning. Take him consciously with you throughout the day and treat every person you encounter with unhurried love. This is a mindset that is just as effective for the stay-at-home mom as it is the electrician, just as effective and powerful and needed for the businessman as it is the nurse. It's, 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 it transforms how you will see people, whether it is your children, a coworker, your parents. It will transform your time with people that you intersect with. Number two, reflect on your desperate need before Jesus. Before Christ saved you, reflect on your desperate state before Christ saved you and allow gospel humility and gratitude to grow in you. This is important when there's an opportunity in a text like this for us to reflect on the fact that we're more like the lame beggar than Peter and John in so many ways. It will grow gospel humility in you and gratitude in you. Remember Jesus's words in Luke 7. To those who imagine that they've been forgiven little, they will love Christ little. If you come here on Sunday and you just never really feel that excited about what Jesus has done for you, you don't understand what Jesus has done for you. You don't understand his grace. Reflect on your desperate state before Christ saved you. And you might find that there are new fruit of gratitude that grows in your heart. Lastly, commit to being a channel of God's 
power and grace in the lives of others. Don't live your Christian life in your own power. That should be a part of our everyday prayers. I want to rely upon you. Isn't that good news? If you've ever been terrified to bring Christ's mission to your work or to a coworker or someone cutting your hair, it's terrifying sometimes. Don't forget Jesus's power is with you. His spirit is with us to make our ministry effective. That is such good news. We minister in Jesus's powerful name. We depend upon him for all of our effectiveness in ministry. Pray with me. Father, help us be faithful as a church to continue to preach the wonders of the name of your son, Jesus, that we saw on display in our passage here, and we will continue to see be put on display throughout the book of Acts, the wonders of, and the glories of Jesus's name and power. I pray that we would understand what it means, each of us as Christ followers, to be a witness sent each and every week into this world to be used effectively. Help us be with you in the mornings. Help us take you consciously with us through our days and help us with eyes wide open to your purposes all around us. Treat every person we come in contact with with an unhurried love and grace and dignity and watch how you transform our days Give us grace for this mission work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.